Queer Relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Happy Pride! Here at IM Clinic, we are so thankful for all of you and hope that each one of you has a pride you are proud of this year. Isaac and I love any opportunity we have to engage with our community, and we are finding our Q&A sessions are the perfect way for us to do that. We are thankful for the questions we received and are looking forward to participating in these Q&As more often as we go. Today, we have several questions we know many in our audience will relate to. Let's take a listen. Well, we have a couple of questions here. <laughs> Another QRT Q&A. Mm-hmm. There we go. Which is really exciting. Yes. <laughs> I know. It feels like such a victory this year just to be able to celebrate in person. And it makes me kind of wonder how things are going to be. I don't know. I just wonder how people are going to experience pride in person after the pandemic. That's something I've been thinking about a lot. I think it'll be really positive. It makes me wonder like how will that shape the culture of it and what people are looking for when they go and kind of the deepening in that way. So, And it fits right in line with this year's theme at IM Clinic, which is resilient. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be really interested to think about our resilience, not only from a mental health perspective, how am I resilient? over trauma in my relationships, that sort of thing. But also to your point, like how are we resilient as a community um, through COVID? Or I don't wanna necessarily say over COVID because that's not the reality we're hoping for here, but how can we come together and celebrate as a community once again, what does our resilience look like? Um, So I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure, me too, I really am. Um, So we put it out there to get a few questions that we want to do periodically to be able to answer um, some things that maybe y'all are kind of wondering in your queer lives. Um, So we'll do our best to give you our take on some of these really actually, I think, helpful questions. I think questions a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. The first one is, how do I know when I'm ready to start dating again after a breakup? It's mm, a good one. You know, I, I do think that that is a very, very sincere question. I believe that there's a lot of erroneous messages out there. Like, I don't know, you know, take how long your relationship is or take how long your relationship was and times it by 2.5. And that's how mm-hmm. long it take you to get over <laughs> that person, you know, or <laughs> I mean, we have all sorts of ways you know, like the best way to get over someone is to get under someone. Um, And I am completely certain that those are not the best mantras (laughs) to use. (laughs) Totally agree. Um, I often think that having sex with someone as a way of getting over someone else is actually a way of provoking more pain. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of even physical discomfort. It can leave feelings of betrayal like you are betraying your ex-partner um it could leave you feeling like you're a fraud or um i think a lot of what i hear and i've even experienced before is like serious feelings of infidelity 
Mm -hmm. I'm cheating on my ex-partner, even though I know rationally I'm not, the motion mm -hmm. of my body is still experiencing and saying something else. Mm -hmm. I believe that oftentimes when we're grieving a partner, oftentimes, not all the time, we're grieving not necessarily the person, their eyes, their smile, their hands, their voice, their unique contributions to our world, but we're actually grieving the role that they play in our life, our companion. Um, and so I think this isn't, again, it's not true for every case, but when it is true for dating, I think that it's important to recognize we don't, we're not really grieving the person, but grieving having them play the role in our life. And I think when we start to realize that our desires have shifted away from wanting the unique contributions of that person, their essence, their personhood, and we're shifting back into craving having a companion, a teammate, a life partner, that might be a good sign that um, those desires might be a good compass, rather, to follow in terms of what actions you choose to take. Um, I think there's probably a whole different conversation around grieving, too. Um, grieving someone is a very, very painful process. Mm -hmm. A lot of us know this. I describe it this way to my clients. I'm interested how you might describe it to yours. But I describe the five domains of grief almost like they're popcorn, because a lot of people think that they're progressive stages. So we have depression, denial, bargaining, acceptance, and anger. Mm -hmm. And depending on what you read, it can almost sound like you process through them from one stage to the next. You know, I'm in depression, I'm in denial, I'm bargaining, I'm angry, and oh, well, I reached acceptance. Mm -hmm. But in my view, they're like popcorn. So you're going to feel angry, acceptance, denial, angry, acceptance, angry, denial, bargaining, depression, depression, you're, you know, like mm -hmm. you have no idea what the same time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Even <laughs> and so as a person goes through that grief process, it might be really, it might feel comfort, comforting to reach out to someone new to have a rebound as a way of mitigating or medicating the grief. And I definitely don't think that's a sign that it's time <laughs> to start yeah. dating again. Mm -hmm. I have found, and I've gone through several very painful breakups, and I've even lost um, someone who's very, very dear to me, my Aunt Sarah. And I realized that the most painful part of grief for me, and it's been true for a lot of my clients, and it feels like the final stage oftentimes of serious grief, is grieving the hope mm -hmm. that you will have that person back. Mm -hmm. And when we're ready to grieve the hope that they can come back into our lives, I think we are ready. We are pushing through the final pieces of grief, almost like the last little chunks of residue in our body. So I think when we hit that stage, it's also another sign that we're ready today. I can meander on from here and think of other things, but I'm interested. <laughs> no, it's great. I feel the same way. I think that very commonly we are looking for more of a formula to try to kind of tell us an external thing that will let us know when we're ready. 
And a lot of what you're describing and what I see and what I've tried myself in my life is called like emotional bypassing, trying to bypass the pain, um, trying to find the answer, trying to get through it faster um, and put limits on it. And I think that's sometimes really tricky. Sometimes people actually date really fast after they break up. That's actually okay for a lot of people. They might've even been grieving the relationship before it actually came to an end Mm -hmm. for quite a long time. And, you know, I think what Isaac's saying and what I would echo for sure is um, cultivating that awareness of self. And it's that feeling that you have where if you search within you, there might still be kind of the you know, the discoloration of a bruise or like, you know, the elements of a scar from that previous relationship, but it's not, it's not as like tender to the touch. It's not as fresh. It's not as new. It's not as shocking. Um, It's not something you're wanting to avoid. It doesn't need immediate care, that kind of stuff. And I think about that, like searching within and, and really kind of finding that place within yourself. I think we all know when that's still raw. And I also think, of course, if we don't know or if we're not connected to our emotions or ourselves yet, it's a great way to, to do that and find that out in therapy as opposed to trying to kind of find every other solution. I do think the one thing I want to mention as well is just what would that look like when you're in different um, relationship structures like polyamory or having an open relationship and the effects within that too. I mean, I think... Um, we could maybe assume this is coming from a monogamous lens, but I also know that this is a question that comes up a lot when maybe a throuple is ending or, you know, somebody is, um, having an end to a relationship, but they're still maintaining one or several other relationships. And I think when you're thinking about it that way, that becomes more a systemic question as well, where it's not just, when am I ready, which is a really important thing and, and asking the questions Isaac mentioned and the ones that I kind of also shared are really important, but it's almost like realizing that that break, it's kind of like if you have, you know, things connected within a line and you like cut that line, right? All of the elements that are attached to that line are going to feel that reverberation, right? So I'm thinking about like kind of like the buoys or whatnot that you might see like in a pool or something, if they were pulled taut and you cut one, it's like all the other ones are still, are going to feel it too. So I think having an awareness about that is really important. Having a conversation with the people that you're in relationship with as well in regards to whether or not the system can actually tolerate dating again. Um, That's important depending on your situation and what you've agreed to. So just kind of wanting to put that out there um, a little bit as well. I think the big thing is there's no perfect answer. There's no one size fits all answer to this one. And I think looking for that will be a waste of time. So I think it's continuing to cultivate that self-awareness and also really being aware too of like, have I learned some really important things from that relationship I would like to carry forward do I have a sense of, you know, just a closure within that loop, even if that person will always be a part of me or part of my memory or, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. There's no wonder that we ask all the, about this all the time because it's hard. 
I remember one morning after a breakup, it was almost like spring cleaning. I was in an apartment. I lived by myself. Um, let me back up. One of my most devastating breakups <laughs> came after um, I either gave away or threw away all of my furniture because we used oh. to move across state lines. And so I go through this whole process of literally throwing away my whole life, at least my furniture, my home life. <laughs> and then the person, it was like two weeks before we were supposed to, or like a month before we were supposed to leave. And he says, I'm not going with you. And I don't think this relationship is going to work out. And so I had to scramble to find another apartment in Denver. And in this apartment, I assembled all kinds of new furniture. I bought a couch, mm. my kitchen table, and all the things I needed for the kitchen and my bedroom. Like, I had to reassemble my whole life. Mm. And I remember there was one morning, and this is the whole spring cleaning part, but it felt like all of the cravings for him had been gone. Mm. And I was ready to... I was ready for vulnerability again. Like I was ready to be rejected in the dating world. I was ready to try at love one more time, almost like love had earned its trust back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I'm ready to welcome someone else's energy in Mm. my space. I'm I'm ready to allow that because I'm emotionally kind of put back together in a place where I can handle the ebbs and flows, the good moments, the bad moments, the falling in love, the breaking ups again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that for me, I remember that being kind of like a really good transitional moment or like an epiphany, like, oh, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it was, but it just, it felt like time. So I agree with you. I don't, there wasn't a rhyme or reason that day didn't happen, you know, 3.5 months after I broke up or. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. There is an element of mystery for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shall we move on to question number two? We shall. Okay. <laughs> this one is um, very rich, right? A lot, lot of layers to this one, I think. Um, how do you keep your religious trauma from interfering in romantic relationships? I don't think you do. <laughs> I know. I don't think I get the, do. I get the premise of the question for sure. Mm-hmm. How do I keep this thing from impacting more of my life than it already has, which I think mm. makes a lot of sense to me any form of trauma, something that we would hope we could kind of, you know, create almost like a little, you know, wall around kind of like a cyst or something like that, right? Where it's like, okay, I can kind of separate that out. I'll just devote some space to it. Maybe it'll keep growing, but at least it won't touch all of these other areas in my life. Um, And yes, I think that it's going to be difficult for us to answer this as fully maybe as I would want, I would imagine for you too, Isaac, only because there's so many different ways and layers behind this that would be very specific to the individual, plural, right, that are experiencing religious trauma or who's actually in the romantic relationship. So I think I just really want to give some space for that. Um, But I think like 
most situations, figuring out timing, um, the growth of your relationship, how much you're vulnerable within that relationship and the timeline in which that's taking place would be a factor in this. I think cultivating a lot of trust is really important for any trauma survivor, um, no matter what in romantic relationships. I mean, if you're you know, we're experiencing some kind of, you know, traumatic event, like a bombing or something like that, that would also actually have an impact on your romantic relationships. Um, because it's going to be, it's deeply integral and impacting to you. And it depends on where you are also in your, in your recovery with that. I would say just because I am a systemic person and truly believe in the power of relationship that I actually would encourage if you have a very solid and trusting relationship to bring that person in on what that means and let them be aware of it. Um, therapy is also really helpful for this. Um, so that way you both can navigate it together and figure out what is it that's happening? What is it that might be impacting your relationship? And if you're with somebody who's not really wanting to go there or process that with you, that could kind of be a red flag for a lot of other things as well. So well said. I think I could see myself asking this question <clears throat> for sure in, in previous relationships, especially the one I have with my partner Joe now. Um, he comes from a Catholic background, but not very involved in the Catholic religion. And that's very different opposed to me who comes from a family where both of my parents are ordained or ministers. My dad's ordained and my mom's not. They're both pastors. Um, and I like religion just to such a major backdrop to my life that before I knew there was a thing called religious trauma, it permeated our entire relationship. Mm -hmm. I would lean in and create connectedness. And then my religious trauma would ignite. So I'd back up and push him away and say like, no, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. And for my first like two boyfriends, uh, we dated for about five years, but I never let them call me their boyfriend because mm -hmm. that was too, too much of a commitment. And mm -hmm. so I, I said, we can, we can be best friends or we can mimic the biblical relationship like um, David mm -hmm. and Jonathan, but we can't be committed because then when that's official, it's officially a sin. And right. so my religious trauma definitely interfered with my romantics for a, an entire decade of my life without my knowing. Mm -hmm. I definitely get the intention behind this question. I also think, I don't know if you hear this, but when, I, when I'm treating someone for anxiety, they often want to keep it a secret from other people or they talk about it as though it's a burden to other people. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us can feel that way about our trauma of any kind, if it's mm -hmm. religious or not. We almost feel like our, tra our trauma symptomology is a burden. It's embarrassing. People tolerate it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that when we ask this question, I, I'm almost seeing it from two perspectives. One, the resilience, how do I heal from it? But also two, kind of how do I sequester it so that mm -hmm. it, I'm not a burden to someone? 
Right. So I just kind of want to throw that piece out there. I agree with Jamie on that first kind of path. How do I, um, how do I demonstrate some sort of resilience? And I, I would agree. I think it's important to say, yo, I have some religious abuse in my background and it comes up from time to time. Sometimes I'm triggered in terms of holidays, religious holidays like Christmas and Easter. I'm mm. triggered when my mom wants to pray for me. Sometimes maybe I'm even triggered when we have sex. There's mm -hmm. still this old narrative within me. And I want to be completely vulnerable so that when the trigger happens, you know what's going on inside of me. And so I can talk about it in a way that makes me um, communicate clearly to, to ask for your support mm -hmm. and to keep me individuated, to keep me in the place where I'm responsible to manage my trigger. And mm -hmm. I can do that. You know, I think some of my narrative would be something like, hey, babe, I need you to know that I'm a little triggered right now. I totally got this. I'm going to need to take a five minute break. Mm -hmm. you wouldn't mind just being here to empathize when I get back, but I'm going to go manage this trigger. And then when we come mm -hmm. back in, we can check in mm -hmm. something along those lines to say, you can be my cheerleader and I'm still going to be on the field, catching and throwing the ball. You can't mm -hmm. catch it and throw it for me. I've got that covered. I've got all the skills there. Um, but I would like it if you could be my cheerleader. I think this kind of, segues to the second route where we want to hide our trauma because we feel like it will be a burden. Mm -hmm. I believe that I agree with you. If a person can't join, how do I, I don't want to say join in the trauma because that's not, I'm, it's not going to articulate how I want to say this, but if a person can't be our cheerleader mm -hmm. when our trauma triggers are just in that context, I agree with you. Maybe they're not the best fit or maybe they can take that as a side to do some growth work. <laughs> yes, exactly. And if they can, and you're still embarrassed or feeling like your trauma is a burden to other people, I think this is a, a great context to practice, slowly practice vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I talk about this all the time in, in the counseling room, on the podcast, but I think we need to start off with the pennies when someone is earning our trust. I'm going to share with you this one cent little mm -hmm. penny. And if you cherish it and put it in a safe place and you don't abuse me with it, then mm -hmm. you another penny. And, and if you earn all these pennies, then we're going to upgrade to the dimes, mm -hmm. and 50 cent pieces. And I think when we're talking about trauma, it's important to, to let someone earn our trust, but by slowly sharing little pieces so that way we don't freak ourselves out and we build this rapport within the relationship that can support um, our vulnerabilities and our trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, I think the, the thing I would add on to that is being aware of our cultural propensity toward viewing these things as a weakness mm -hmm. or something that we need to hide or that's a burden. Um, a lot of that trickling down generationally from the silent generation, right? Post-war to the baby boomers, to Gen Xers, millennials, and now Gen Z, which, you know, Gen Z is actually um, pretty typical being a millennial myself. I feel like it's a bad reputation. <laughs> I 
because they're the new kids on the block, but um, actually have a phenomenal emotional awareness for their age. It's actually amazing to me. It's really, really cool. So it's, I mean, it's nice to to have that, but with all that, I think there's more acceptance and I think there's less, you know, um, short of, yeah, avoidance or feeling bad or guilty about trauma. I do think the other piece to this is recognizing how does our trauma still become part of our story? And I know that so often it's like, we want to just, you know, we want to just kind of cut it off just right. No more. I'm so mad that this is still impacting all of these other elements of my life. I don't want it to interfere with me. I don't want there to be that. Um, it's totally understandable, but integration is a really huge piece of this. Um, and that's true in general. There's so much integration that we're doing on our own. And then that we're doing within partnership. Um, and so I think kind of seeing where you're at within that, I think if it's something that you've just started to address, it's maybe um, aligning expectations Mm -hmm. to where it could have some interference and how do you and your partner kind of navigate that, Mm -hmm. but also create a goal for it to not define your relationship for forever. How do you kind of have guidance along that line? How do you exit out of the patterns that might form from that um, and have that hopeful um, attitude toward renewal? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In terms of that renewal, I'm kind of thinking like if I were gonna answer this question in one sentence, I haven't obviously like pieced it together. So here's my shitty rough draft, but. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks, Brene. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I think the way that we keep our religious trauma from interfering in our romantic relationships is by making it a part of our romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, attachment psychology, this is one thing I, again, I say a lot on here, but attachment psychology would say the perfect partner is not someone who behaves perfectly. It's the person who allows these interferences to happen with mm-hmm. the willingness to clean them up. Yes. And so it's in saying that in another words is saying by allowing this religious trauma to be a part of the romantic relationship and the dance and the conversations, we get to show our partners who we are more fully. Mm -hmm. And if it negatively impacts the relationship by being honest and open about the trauma and talking through it, that is the way we repair relationships. And to go back to the research, the attachment research would say that those repairs Mm -hmm. are the thing that makes the relationship perfect. That's right. Yeah. So I feel like there's another piece to this or layer that I want to get to that I can't find yet, but. um, Well, I love where you're going with it in terms of actually realizing that, especially when, you know, it's done appropriately with boundaries and the vulnerability that you've established trust with this person and all of that, right? Not necessarily just totally jumping the gun. that actually these kind of little fractures within us or that happen within the relationship can actually form an even more solid state. So I talk about this all the time within the attachment, you know, spectrum of like 
we attach, there's a break, we repair. And just like a bone in the human body, when you actually repair that, it's actually stronger in the place where it was broken Mm -hmm. than it ever is, you know, on the other parts of the bone, right? And so it's looking at it a little bit more from that lens where it's not a perpetual weakness, but actually if you do the pieces, right, which is resetting it, giving it time, space to heal, knowing, okay, maybe it was a little too soon for me to try to do this activity, you know, that kind of idea, you'll actually be stronger for it. And your relationship can be too. Absolutely. What do you think about this idea around the victims becoming the villain? And what I mean by that, I remember feeling like because of all my religious trauma, um, whenever I would kind of lean into my relationship with Joe and then recoil because the trauma triggered and I got afraid, I started to, to, instead of being the victim of religious abuse, I became the villain in my relationship. Mm. Look at me, I'm leaning in and then I push him away. I do mm. this thing and I can't stand it. So then I smack him. I don't literally smack him figuratively, <laughs> um, kind of smack him back, almost like, you know, hitting his wrist. Like, no, 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 we can't do that. Mm. And after I watched my pattern there, it was like, I am the villain now harming my relationship. And I forgot for several years that I was actually the victim. And what I was trying mm-hmm. to manage was the, the symptoms. Yeah. And so I think it's really important for us. This is what I mean, maybe by vulnerability. To say there might be a behavioral pattern that comes from, that is a byproduct or symptom of my religious abuse. And let's talk about that because this comes from being hurt not necessarily me trying to be a monster, not me trying to create fractures. And Mm -hmm. so if we can understand that this behavioral pattern is coming from the pain I've endured Mm -hmm. rather than this manipulative or malicious intent, it keeps us really centered in the place where we can both cherish the symptoms, nurture them and help repair not only the relationship but the wounding as Mm -hmm. opposed to making a villain out of the person who's been traumatized. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, another language that I would use for that um, is parts work, internal family systems, Mm -hmm. and like, you know, inner child work. There's a lot of different languages for it. Actually, it's very similar, but just different pathways. Um, A lot of times we develop coping mechanisms out of trauma or through childhood that do protect us for a time. Mm -hmm. As we grow, if we don't reintegrate or kind of navigate through those coping mechanisms or those parts of us that form, Mm -hmm. they actually often manifest the very thing they're trying to protect us from. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, if I'm afraid of being rejected and so therefore I will not let anybody, right, in um but that's the absolute kind of part of me that developed then the more i get close to someone the more activated that part of me is going to become that's like no no no. you know you have to be protected um so you're trying to protect yourself from that part of you is trying to protect you from rejection 
but then it's actually kind of causing feelings of rejection because there's loneliness and not being able to actually have that relationship, maybe even feeling bad because you push that person away. Um, so yeah, these are really important things to be aware of. And I think putting it in that language of even kind of the drama triangle or understanding a little bit of how we kind of navigate, you know, through that and how we blame ourselves so often, because also when we are younger survival survivors of trauma, we take on the control, right? So instead of believing the world is a scary place in which people may not actually act on our behalf, we believe that the things that happen to us are our fault. So it's actually called the inverse locus of control shift, which is really taking the locus of control to other people who are responsible for their choices. Other people may have flaws and may not be perfect, especially parents or caregivers. That's a really scary thing for a child to believe. So we take it inward and we go, well, if my dad can't be a bad person, right? Um, it's my dad. So therefore I must've done something bad to deserve this or this caregiver can't be a bad person or the world isn't chaotic. It's just my fault. I keep messing up. So getting into some deep stuff for sure, but trauma has a way of doing that. It's like the fissure, you know, in the deep kind of earth's crust, right? Of our hearts, like it just goes straight to the point. Um, but the good news is, and I think the most hopeful news is it really can feel like we're always going to, to feel that way, respond that way, be that way, struggle in that way. Integration sometimes can happen like shockingly fast when it's primed. Um, you know, there's tons of interventions and other ways to help the body and the emotions to heal from trauma. Um, so just kind of putting in that hopeful message too, that even though it brings up a lot of stuff, there's a lot of pathways. And I know I personally um, am perpetually floored by the ability to heal, right? Um, in my own life and then also watching that through the clients that I work with, it's wonderful. The theme for our Pride series is I am resilient because I want it to remind all of you that trauma is strong and effective, but so are we. During this Pride season, I hope, sincerely hope, that you take time to recognize your power, your natural talents, your genuine nature, and your ability to create the safety you need. I hope you take care of yourself from the inside out as you celebrate who you are. Happy Pride! Now let's get back to the show. Next question. Yeah, you want to read it? Sure. <laughs> advice for addressing different sexual pasts like our experiences number of partners etc how do we do that mm -hmm. intentionally <laughs> that would be my word for that um yeah this brings up a lot of really interesting things i mean i think um i think maybe just being aware that um the conversation. So I'm a fan of letting people kind of know when a topic like this is coming up. Um, if you're in a relationship and you're kind of talking about it, sort of maybe doing it passively may not give you the full picture that you're looking for. <laughs> um, it could, you know, catch somebody off guard, that kind of thing. I think it could be helpful 
to just, you know, say, Hey, like, I think it'd be really helpful to know more about your past and for you to know more about mine, because that's obviously something that's going to influence us moving forward. Do you think we could have that conversation now and just kind of seeing how that goes? And if the answer is not quite ready, then just asking a follow-up around like, okay, can we check in Mm-hmm. a couple weeks or like what would feel like a good time frame so that it doesn't feel like it just gets lost and buried as well because it is really important I think um having a really open posture is really um is really needed realizing that you may hear things you're not that you're surprised by that you're maybe sometimes not even prepared to hear depending on what it is that you're talking about and I think if you know, you can set the tone of what you'd like in a way, the culture of that conversation to look like, or what you would like the intention behind it to be. Um, It might be one of those elements where it's like, okay, I'm not going to react, or I'm going to try not really, I'm going to try really hard not just to react in this moment, Mm -hmm. but to take that in and really process what's coming up, right? So is this a value discrepancy maybe that's emerging that I actually really do need to pay attention to that could be very problematic that maybe we can't totally like get past, right? Is this something that makes me feel intimidated? And is that more about me and what I need in order to feel more secure? Um, Am I okay with it? Like that might be just fine. (laughs) It might not be a big deal at all. Um, But I just think having an awareness of that and and being very aware to not utilize that conversation as an immediate kind of all or nothing would be really good because that is sometimes a self-protective strategy as we ask these questions, Mm -hmm. hoping somebody will get like a pass fail. And that's not a good feeling for anybody, but it's also really important to be aware of as a person because, um, you know, you might be kind of putting up those walls as things are getting a little bit more vulnerable or close. Um, So just, you know, continuing to have an open range and maybe even having some questions that you've written down that you're hoping to kind of get answers to that you're also willing to answer yourself could be helpful as well just to kind of anchor and know that it doesn't need to be a one and done Mm -hmm. it's I think most conversations a lot of times people think okay well that's closed but I'm a big fan of any conversation is always open to be reopened if it's needed if something comes up and it's like oh I actually have a follow-up question on that that came up for me later on. I think it's an important thing to be able to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that some of these questions, I think they almost, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes when we have these conversations, we wanna understand why we're having the conversation. Yeah. What is the motive? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to, you know, like ask these questions and then cross our fingers and, you know, <laughs> squinch inward <laughs> that we get a good answer because we want to feel safe? Mm-hmm. Um, are we asking these questions because we're generally curious about our new partner's context? Mm-hmm. Um, I So I kind of just want to be cautious with maybe or highlighting a little bit of mindfulness. Why are you wanting to know some of this information? Mm-hmm. Because if it's a mechanism of creating safety or security, you might want to hit pause on this conversation. Mm-hmm. Check in on where your, where your sense of safety and security really do come from with that person um, in terms of observing their character. 
I, I like this question too, because it really highlights the idea that, well, maybe some preconceived notions for some of us, not for everybody, obviously, but I think there's this idea here around like, um, does sex diminish our ability to love full-heartedly? So can I love better if I've only slept with one previous person versus a thousand previous people? Hmm. And I think that's kind of an ideological question a lot of us have to grapple with. You know, I would say that I could have slept with 500,000 people before I met Joe and the way that I love him isn't in any way um, limited by what I did sexually before I met him. Mm -hmm. I think that if there is any um, influence on how I love Joe, it's because of something, um, I want to say the word immature, I kind of use that word in a lot of different ways, but it's, it's because there's still maybe a part of me or my wounding or my traumatic past, my lack of experience that still allows some of that interference to happen. It's not the direct result of sleeping with people. Mm -hmm. And that's my story. Everybody's might be different. So I kind of just want to set the context for um, why are you approaching this question and having these conversations with your partner? Mm -hmm. Another important thing I think when we, whenever we have these intentional conversations like you mentioned is um, boundaries. And I have a kind of a different definition of boundaries it comes from mother Malady. I, I'm making a joke there, but <laughs> <laughs> Pia Malady, who is a saint in my mind, a <laughs> saint, um, she would say that boundaries, they serve different functions. I know I talk about this on the podcast, but to set the context for today, we think that boundaries is what it is. They are one barrier that protects us from being hurt by other people. But Pia adds a couple more layers to say that same boundary protects them from me hurting them. Mm -hmm. It's a stopping point. It's an internal mechanism that says, ah, 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 Isaac, you're not allowed to harm someone, to verbally slander someone, to accuse, blame, shame, critique, manipulate someone as a way of medicating yourself. Mm -hmm. That boundary not only protects me, but it protects the people around me. Mm. This conversation, this boundary, I like to think of it like a snow globe, where inside the snow globe, I have everything I need to keep my emotional reality intact. Mm -hmm. So when I'm watching someone who's outside of my snow globe, I get to be like a scientist observing a species in the wild. Mm -hmm. So when my new partner says, I've slept with 15 people last week mm -hmm. that inside of my snow globe nothing changes I'm so boundaried that I can sit in that conversation and be very curious mm -hmm. to say like tell me more about that now that's not to say boundaries are perfect um, because those boundaries take a lot of skills and, mm -hmm. and that is fair and legitimate for sure I definitely know that there are some things where I'm like I'm in my snow globe and then someone says something like, <laughs> it just shattered <laughs> Oh, yeah. right that and that's human that's <laughs> yes, it is. Mm -hmm. but I think when we come <clears throat> with these boundaries we're able to say I'm going to observe what you're saying and ask questions and get and use this conversation as a way of getting to know you and your value system your character your moral compass rather than being influenced personally by this information 
And so I think whenever, whatever the intentional conversation is, we might want to hop in our snow globe and watch what happens outside of it, like a observer mm -hmm. rather than um, like a lost hiker during a blizzard, you know? Mm -hmm. oh, this is so cold and painful, so. I love that. Yeah. yeah, and I would just say, I think like with anything in relationship conversations, the more you can believe that no matter what happens in any kind of conversation, if it's something that kind of throws you off or um, brings up things that it's really genuinely like maybe 98% of the time, not an emergency. Mm -hmm. So take your time. I like that thought. I was just thinking, you know, advice for addressing this might be, my advice might not be specifically in how you address it, but what you do after you addressed it. Mm -hmm. You know, if I tell my partner, this is my sexual past and the numbers and all of the things that I've done. Mm -hmm. And from this point going forward, I want you to observe me and my love for you. Mm -hmm. what you're going to observe is going to supersede anything that I have done mm -hmm. and establishing that kind of relational intimacy, that type of loyalty might be more important than what the past contact looks like. So mm -hmm. we'll get out there. Yeah. I think having an and then, right. Mm -hmm. Yes. What do we do with this conversation and how can we also reflect and validate what it is that we've heard mm -hmm. um, and, you know, move to that place of acceptance, mm -hmm. um, which is a really important thing, regardless, right? You might go there real fast because you might be like totally accepting about it. It's fine mm -hmm. for other people. It might be different. So, yeah. Yeah. Just maybe as an antidote. Um. I once had a couple, they were my clients here at the clinic and they had this conversation. And in a playful way, one of the partners wanted to know about penis size. Mm -hmm. And one of my clients had slept with someone who had a very large external member. <laughs> and although this conversation was in jest and it was supposed to be kind of erotic and sexy, it actually manifested in the other person as an insecurity. Well, is mm. too small? Do you enjoy mine? Is it fun for you? Do you miss his? Do you wish you were back with him? And it kind of became this whole thing we had to process through. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really emphasize knowing the context because I think it's important to know why is this information, how will this information be applied to our relationship and does it need mm -hmm. to be? Mm -hmm. um, because if those boundaries are not in place, information like this can feel threatening and that is not the point mm -hmm. and so um if that safety within the relationship isn't established maybe this conversation um isn't necessary or is, it's not time for it yet until more of that fidelity is experienced and believed in mm -hmm. right yeah. and it may provide the opportunity like we were saying before of repair too yeah. Um, like any conversation, we might be really surprised suddenly mm -hmm. by our reaction to it or the way in which that, you know, provoked something. And I think something that we talk a lot about um, with like hid with hidden issues is trivial tri triggers. So something that might seem somewhat trivial, but like a big reaction comes from it usually points to a hidden issue 
Mm-hmm. So being curious with yourself too, if you find that you're being really triggered by something or having a really strong response mm-hmm. out of what may be, you know, that may be a surprise to you or a surprise to others is a good indication that there could be some more digging to do. Yeah. So our last question, how do you find and or build a chosen family? Which is a really sweet question and a really important one. And one a lot of people ask. Mm I would say, do you want me to go first? <laughs> sure. I have some thoughts. Um, no surprise, <laughs> I always have thoughts. Um, Sorry, I do. I have some setup. <laughs> I don't know what I do. Yeah. Sorry, Lily. Okay. <clears throat> I would say that finding a chosen family is a practice of vulnerability to kind of go back to. Um, all of the other questions we've answered so far. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like for me personally, I know that I have found someone who I want to be part of my chosen family when I can demonstrate vulnerability in front of them and they cherish and protect my vulnerability. Mm -hmm. They take what I say, they respect it. They never use it against me. I think that's number one. Number two for me um, are the people who are willing to affirm my inherent value, mm-hmm. not my performance. Mm. When they can say, Isaac, I don't like you because you're funny, or I don't like you because you do these spectacular things. I like you because I enjoy your essence. I enjoy who I am when I get to be around you. Mm. I think that's another really important thing for me. And then this is kind of one of my non-negotiables for chosen family, not not that I have those, but it's really important to me that someone, um, people in my chosen family are willing to do the repair work. Mm -hmm. Just say like, ooh, we fractured and that was really hurtful. And we have the courage and the safety knowing each other's personalities that we can enter into this really um, otherwise scary place. To have this repair conversation to say, I hurt you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and that they're willing to do that for me. Um, so I think, especially as a queer person, that, that mirroring piece, someone who can affirm my essence as a queer person, mm-hmm. and I feel comfortable enough to be my authentic self, I think that's a really, really good start. Mm-hmm. I love where you're going with that in regards to maybe thinking about criteria. Um, Finding and building a chosen family is a process and Mm -hmm. it can be, you know, it can ebb and flow. It can change. You hope to find the people who it will be unchangeable with. Um, But I think also realizing too, like what is really important to you as a person, like what Isaac was just sharing that really, really matters because it's not about creating, um, you know, some kind of weird, you know, like I'm trying to think like survive, like a, what, like a test, you know, like a obstacle course. That's what I'm trying to think (laughs) Um, in order for somebody to get in. Right. It's not trying to create some kind of, you know, testing process so much as it is around a value system 
that helps you to know that this is, you know, um, someone that these are people that you want to invest in, but also who want to really invest in you. I think something that I learned when I was younger was I had a really close friend group um, throughout high school and then that sustained throughout college too. But from a value standpoint, we just really started growing apart in a lot of different ways. I started to kind of feel like, okay, what am I gonna have to suppress uh, within who I am in order to be able to hang out tonight? Um, <clears throat> because I didn't feel like I was actually fully seen and I didn't feel like I was fully accepted. Mm -hmm. And I started to ask the question for myself, if I were in the hospital, would I actually want any one of these people to be there mm -hmm. beyond just knowing somebody's there, right? Would they actually be beneficial for me? Would they be comforting for me? And only one person was a yes, that person's still in my life. Um, I'm very thankful for that. But it was the beginning and I was a lot younger then, but it was the beginning of starting to cultivate this understanding that I want people in my life that are reciprocal and that are going to be there for me and starting to kind of develop that sense of an inner circle <clears throat> and having these rings that go out. And it's not like a ladder. It's not like, you know, I'm so high up there that I can choose you know, who's in or out or whatever. It's literally out of a space of who gets my priority, who gets my attention, who am I going to be there for essentially like a budget. I mean, not to put too, too of a, you know, stifling term on it, but like who gets my energy. And I know that if I'm investing energy there, that energy is also being invested back into me that then allows me to pour into maybe other relationships that might be kind of on the periphery that I don't expect to necessarily be able to, right. They might be in a different season of life or in high need or something like that, but I have to really cultivate people who I know are going to be there. Um, think being aware of your own family of origin, your attachment styles, wounds that you might have patterns that exist, goes a long way because sometimes we can just recreate what we don't want because it's so familiar, right? Human beings love familiarity. So we can easily find another family, quote unquote, that's what I did in some ways, but it's not really like representative of what it is I'm ultimately desiring, right? It's not necessarily different. It's just familiar. Um, so there's actually a lot that goes into this. I think having patience <clears throat> is really important. And then sometimes realizing like the number of people, like, I mean, your inner circle, it might be like two or three people. And then the next ring out might be like another, you know, five or six or something if, if you're lucky, but realizing too, that like this, it takes a lot of effort. And if someone's not wanting to meet you there to not try to force that either is also really important. And I think making it known is also really important in some ways because it's less around, you know, I expect this of you and more around, I want you to know that you can rely on me in this way. I'm hoping I can rely on you too so that you're on the same page. You know, we don't talk a lot about uh, friendship relationships in our society, which I think is a real shame because they're so important and they color so much of our life, so much of our wounding. We're so focused on just the romance piece often. Um, and I get why, but at the same time, it's realizing like how important these relationships are that really truly shape us and help us to feel secure in the world. Um, it's a really important conversation. So I think kind of having the
find the relationship conversations with friends actually isn't a tedia. It isn't always just known. And sometimes, you know, there's been times where it's like, you know, one of my closest friends and I was kind of like, you know, I want to commit to you. I'm, I'm like wanting to put the time aside. I want to see you at minimum every other week. You know, that might be more structured for some of you, but honestly, it was what it took in order to kind of build the consistency, which is really important to attachment. So lots of things to consider there. Life is full of all kinds of questions, and we often look for the guidebook or roadmap to figure out how to navigate different situations and also manage our emotions within them. As a queer person, it can feel even more daunting as so much of our life is defined by the undefined. The freedom to be creative can also bring anxiety as we figure out if we are okay within the world and within ourselves. Often, I talk with my clients about finding their own internal compass and guide system to make sure that they have anchor points to come back to and assess their decisions with. Value-based living is essential for all of us as humans. Even in normative culture, it is so important that we do not bypass the process of establishing our own values and belief systems and how those work collaboratively within the communities we are part of. Working with a therapist or life coach can be so helpful as a partnership to help you further establish these anchor points within yourself. And I Am Clinic and I Am Counsel are always here for you. Our goal in these Q&A sessions is to provide some food for thought and to help our community feel more connected and less alone as we all navigate our pathway through life. As you listen to our answers, take what resonates with you and helps nourish your internal value system and then leave the rest. Our hope is to offer you the grains of wisdom that we have learned as we are navigating life both personally and professionally as queer people so that our ceiling can become your floor and you can reach even further. Sending each of you the very best and I hope that you each find a new sense of pride within yourselves this season and an appreciation for the amazing, unique and wonderful contribution that you are to the world. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic.